I was struggling a bit whether to call this uh, class a Bible reader's guide to the book of Numbers or our 38 years in the wilderness. Uh, we are going to be covering um, a bit of ground here this evening, but uh, hopefully we'll have some audience participation as well. We plan on doing a couple chat clouds if you've ever done one of those before. So um, hang in there with me and uh, hopefully we'll get more lessons out of this wonderful book. Um, as we dive into the book of Numbers in our daily Bible readings, um, we're told right in Numbers 1 verse 1 that, you know, the time frame is that the first day of the second month in the second year since the people came up out of Egypt. So really what we're dealing with here in Numbers is this last 38 years uh, of the 40-year wilderness wanderings. And it was indeed time to head to uh, the promised land and uh, the people started to make preparations to head to the promised land. Um, we see in Numbers 10 verses 11 and 12, and it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up off the tabernacle of the testimony and the children of Israel took their journeys and started heading into the wilderness away from Sinai. So if you remember back in ver chapter one, verse one, it was the first day of the second month. And now we're at the 20th day of the second month. So they, they didn't waste any time in uh, beginning their journey into the wilderness. And, you know, there was a tremendous amount of preparations made. Um, we have all these chapters, very long chapters that can sometimes turn us off a bit uh, to the book of Numbers, but um, there was a census and arrangement of the camp, organization of the priests, the Levites, and the list goes on. And there was really a tremendous amount that got done in these 20 days once they decided to embark on their wilderness wanderings. And, um, you know, to me, there's a big lesson just in that, that, you know, especially for our young people, I, I know that, you know, sometimes when we're thinking about baptism and, you know, starting our journey into the wilderness of life and our, our journey in the truth that, you know, we can wonder, you know, hey, are we ready? You know, is it the right time? Should I wait longer? Should I learn more? Uh, really, the Israelites did not waste any time here. Once they decided, decided to start, it was 20 days and boom, they were gone. Um, and a, a tremendous amount happened in those 20 days. You know, if you really think about it, in the New Testament, there, there's really not uh, that much that's spoken of as as being a prerequisite for deciding to start that journey in the truth. Certainly you need to understand, you need to be of an age where you can uh, believe, uh, but then as long as you're sincere and give an answer of good conscience, you're, you're ready to go. Now, does that mean your journey will be uh, perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, there'll be bumps in the road just as the Israelites had bumps in the road, but I think there's a hidden exhortation here in the the short time frame from when they decided to leave Sinai to when they did leave Sinai, uh, that, you know, when we decide to start that journey, um, don't delay, um, take on the saving name of Christ and get started. Um, another uh, key, just quick exhortation from this first part of Numbers is the fact that we need to live a God-centered life. The, the arrangement of the camp was um, completely surrounding the tabernacle and the, the Levites kind of formed an inner ring that surrounded the tabernacle. 
And then the, the tribes themselves camped on the outer perimeter and everything was around that tabernacle. And, you know, if you delve into the tabernacle itself, it's all about uh, our approach to God in our lives. Um, I was just having a conversation with my neighbor across the street this afternoon. And, you know, he was asking us, you know, I, I think I mentioned this morning, we're planning on taking a, a little trip down South uh, coming up, uh, you know, starting this Thursday, God willing. And, um, he asked me when we're driving home and I said, well, we're, we're going to be driving home on Easter Sunday. Cause that's just how the itinerary worked out. And he was just like, how on earth could you be driving home on Easter Sunday? You should be at church that day. Um, now, you know, he's Catholic and of course, you know, Catholics are, are very big on going to church on Christmas and Easter, but you know, it got me to thinking, you know, how blessed we are that, you know, we don't need to worry about driving home on Easter Sunday because, you know, really our ecclesial life, and this is such a huge blessing of ecclesial life, really gives us this, this idea of having a God-centered life. We have so many opportunities. We, we go to meeting every Sunday. We have opportunities like this, um, midweek class, Sunday school, CYC. If we're really leveraging the ecclesial structure, um, it it gives us that God-centered life with the tabernacle or, or the house of the God or the ecclesia uh, at the center. You know, so we should never feel like the ecclesia is kind of off to the side or kind of a tangential part of our life, uh, but it as a central part of our life, as these verses state, you know, put God first, set your minds on things above, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And of course, that's what we learned uh, this morning, wasn't it, with the uh, offering of the red heifer, that that was the pivot point, if you will. That was the the transition point from the old generation, natural Israel, to the new generation, spiritual Israel. And that, that pivot point was the blood of Christ uh, mixed with the waters of purification. So continuing on, we saw this slide um, this morning, but it's it's a good reminder that numbers is very symmetrical. It's, it's in three parts. The first generation leaving Sinai, Israel's 38 years in the wilderness, and the second generation on the plains of Moab, natural Israel transitioning to spiritual Israel. And we'll see more uh, symmetry in a bit, but today we're going to focus on this transitional period. What what really changed? What, what were some of the things that the first generation was doing wrong? Uh, things that we see going on in the world right now, amazingly enough, and things that the second generation was doing right, things that we can remind ourselves of, of the good practices we want to continue in the truth. So we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, this morning, we'll look at the other famous verse in the New Testament um, that basically tells us that these wilderness wanderings are our wanderings. You know, the, the book of the Numbers is essentially about us. It's about our uh, life of wandering uh, in our wilderness uh, as we grow and mature in the truth. Uh, just looking at verse 38 there, um, speaking of Moses, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness. That's the Greek word ecclesia. Um, and the ecclesia was in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received 
the lively oracles that were given to us. So it's the, the Stephen is pointing us to, to this time and saying, that's, that's your time. Uh, take a look at this. So um, Israel's 38 years in the wilderness will be the focus for this study. We, we, once again, we talked about the pivot point this morning, uh, the offering of the red heifer. And now we'll take a little bit of a broader look uh, at chapters 11 through 21. And we'll just be hitting some highlights. Um, obviously, you know, that we don't only have so much time here. So we'll just be hitting some highlights that will hopefully whet your appetite uh, for really enjoying and, and reading through this book. Uh, in our daily Bible readings as we proceed throughout uh, March and April. You know, the Israelites spent 38 years in a fairly confined area. I don't know if you can see my pointer or not, but they were mostly in between this area of Kadesh Barnea and this area of Elith at the tip of the uh, eastern arm of the Red Sea. Um, this is where they were for 38 years, and it wasn't a, a terribly big area, um, only about 150 miles across. And, um, you know, you might say it was, uh, it was a grind. And as, as a matter of fact, you can definitely say it was a grind. It was, it was kind of like the dog days, if you will, of, of their lives and the truth. Um, and they didn't really get very far geographically, did they? They, you know, were almost... Uh, walking in place, so to speak, yet they made a tremendous amount of progress spiritually. And uh, we'll come back to this point later, but it, it's, it's true that, you know, there's no replacement for endurance and perseverance in the truth. It's, it's just during those tough times, uh, you know, the, this past year has been a difficult time, hasn't it? It's been a time that's been a frustrating for a lot of us, you know, especially, uh, you know, most of us, you know, really, really miss, um, you know, being together. You know, my, my middle son, Zach, has actually very much enjoyed being able to stay at home for a year because that's what he likes to do. But, uh, you know, for most of us, um, it's been tough and it, it's been a time where we've had to persevere and grind through. And yet this is where spiritual growth occurs during these times. So it's the story of two generations, isn't it? It's, it's, we sometimes refer to the first generation as the bad generation or natural Israel, and the second generation is the, the good generation or spiritual Israel. Uh, we know that the, the first generation, you know, they just died out in the wilderness, and the second generation entered the land under Joshua, who, of course, is a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, just getting back to the symmetry of the book of Numbers for a second, uh, we, we see that these two generations actually had a lot of, let's say, similar experiences. They, they both went through a census uh, in um, Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. Interestingly enough, the, the first generation did a fairly decent job of at least replacing themselves and that there was a similar number of fighting men and Levites um, they both went through instruction periods for the next phase. The first generation, of course, learned how to travel, how to transport the ark and, and the tabernacle and how to arrange the camp. For the second generation, we're taught how to apportion the land and, and how they should divide up the land uh, when they did arrive at the promised land. 
Um, there was a lot of organization of the Levites. Uh, in the first generation, it was more about commissioning the tabernacle, commissioning themselves, and learning the service of the tabernacle. And then uh, towards the end of Numbers, the Levites are more being set up for when they are in the land with the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities. Uh, there was special laws that were established that we mentioned uh, this morning. The laws that are given in Numbers are particularly appropriate for that phase of their history. Uh, laws of defilement, how to deal with disease and death in uh, Numbers 5, uh, and then in Numbers 28 and 29, once they're in the land, how to set up the regular offerings at the tabernacle um, that would occur on a periodic uh, basis. Uh, there was, both generations had vows and instructions on how to do vows, the, the Nazarite vow and the individual vows. And there was also chronicles of the journeys uh, for each generation, the first generation and then the second generation. So we can see in this first and third portion of numbers, it's, it's very symmetrical, uh, structured uh, very much on purpose. And our attention is really being funneled into this, this middle part of numbers, which was the key transition period. Now, not only did they have similar experiences and, and um, let's say similar um, structure, but um, the first generation wasn't necessarily all bad and the second generation wasn't necessarily all good. Um, the, the first generation uh, made a suggestion on how to approve, improve the Passover law. Uh, and that was adopted in Numbers 9. Um, the second generation, the daughters of Zelophehad, suggested an improvement to the laws of land inheritance. So um, if one had no sons, the land would still stay in the, stay in the family. However, both generations struggled with immorality. We know the first generation struggled with immorality at the incident with the golden calf. The second generation committed whoredoms with the Moabites and the Midianites who were trying to secretly sabotage them. And then both generations had problems with complaining. Um, you might say that the first generation uh, definitely took the gold medal on complaining. They uh, complained frequently and often. And, and uh, however, uh, the second generation was not without their times of complaining. And of course, the First generation completely dropped the ball when it came to entering the land. Uh, but the second generation as well had problems here. There were two and a half tribes that decided that they were going to stay east of the Jordan, uh, which Moses and the Lord was not particularly pleased with, but um, they were allowed to do that. So, you know, I, I firmly believe there'll be some in the first generation that um, will be in the kingdom. Uh, it appears Zelophehad himself was a a godly man that was part of that first generation other than uh, obviously Caleb and Joshua. Uh, so I, I don't think it's that cut and dried, but the, the scripture is clearly holding up this middle part of numbers as a transition from a generation that couldn't enter the land to one that could. So the, the scriptures are very emphatic that this first generation, not a single one of them, was going to enter the land of promise. Uh, even though some of those might ultimately be in the kingdom, we don't know for sure other than Caleb and Joshua. Um, the, the scriptures is very emphatic that all those men of war were wasted out from among the host uh, 
during these 38 years. And a verse over in Numbers is even more emphatic than Numbers 26. There was not a man uh, that was in this second numbering on the plains of Moab that was part of the first numbering uh, in Numbers chapter 1, save Caleb and Joshua. So the, the scripture is really drawing our attention to this type that the first generation failed and then the second generation succeeded in entering the land of promise. So this is where I was hoping we could have some uh, audience participation. So if you've ever done a chat cloud before, um, I'm going to ask you a question and you got to respond in one word. So um, if you, uh, I'll, I'll try to find the chat window here. And here we go. Okay, so hopefully this will work. If, if folks, in, in one word, the question is, what caused the first generation to fail? What, what was the root cause of their failure uh, to enter the land of promise? So you got one word to do it. And if you can just start going and we'll see what everyone has to say. Unbelief, excellent. Fear, beautiful, doubt, more fear, unfaithful. So you guys are good at this. You've probably done this before. Uh, flesh, unbelief, selfishness, excellent. Very good. So you guys have obviously read numbers before. Um, yeah, those are good answers. Those are all right on the spot. Scared. Excellent. Very scared that that goes along with um, lack of faithfulness. Trust. Yep. They trusted themselves. They didn't trust in God. Yeah, very good. Excellent. We'll have a couple other of these as we go. Sin. Beautiful. All right. We're going to kind of latch on to that last one, sin as we proceed here. So um, what I've done is I've kind of come up with four reasons why this first generation just didn't seem to be able to cut it. Uh, and, and the first reason is they spent a lot of times looking backwards to, let's say, the sin of Egypt. So that, that was a, a good one that was thrown in there. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, we won't turn these verses up, but if you kind of progress through them, it, you know, they start out saying, look, we were really better off in Egypt, we're just going to die out here. Then they really start longing for the flesh pots and the bread of Egypt. Then they, they appear to be getting really hungry because they start talking about the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onion, the garlic. And then, you know, by the time you get to Numbers 14, they're like, look, let's just elect a captain and return to Egypt. And then, interestingly, in number 16, they start referring to Egypt as the land that flows with milk and honey. So they're, they're actually looking uh, back to Egypt as their promised land. They've, they've almost made a full U-turn. Now, we know, brothers and sisters, that, you know, the world wants to be our kingdom, right? That's, that's what marketing is all about these days is is trying to make the world so attractive that that's what we go for and that's what we um, that's what we want. That becomes our kingdom in life, and that's 
that's clearly what had happened to the first generation is, is they made this commitment and then started looking back to their, to their prior life and to what the world had the offer I, to offer. I just will share with you a quick story that really uh, brought this home to me. Um, years and years and years ago, we were, we were down at uh, Disney World and uh, we were standing in front of a, a park that was called the Magic Kingdom waiting to enter. And uh, one of the boys, I think it was Caleb, he was quite young at the time. He was probably only four or five. He, he looked at me and he was like, Dad, is this the kingdom? And it really, <laughs> to be quite honest, you know, struck a chord with me that, hey, wait a minute, that's exactly what the world's trying to do. They're trying to be our kingdom. And of course, you know, we, we have to, uh, you know, kind of shun that uh, pull that the world is putting on us and, and have that vision of the kingdom be looking to the other side of the wilderness, uh, to the promised land. The Apostle Paul makes this point uh, really well in, in Philippians 3, um, where he says, brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forth to what lies ahead. And that phrase straining forth is from a Greek phrase that it's really talking about a runner that's reaching for the finish line. And basically the point the Apostle Paul is making is you can't run a race looking backwards. You, you have to be looking forwards. And this was something that the first generation just couldn't get over is this idea of looking back to Egypt, but it's, it's something we need to be mindful of as well in our lives that we, you know, the, the world wants to be our kingdom and we, we can't let it become that. The second generation uh, talked about Egypt a little bit, but that died out pretty quick. It, it was really the first generation that was looking back to Egypt. And it was, it got so bad that God wanted to start over with Moses on four separate occasions, if you can believe it. He got so frustrated with the people that he, he just said, look, enough, done with you, I'm, I'm going to start over. So um, this is really, I think, that one of the first causes for their failure was this idea of looking backwards to the land of sin. Now, the next one is, uh, I've somewhat flippantly entitled Fine Wine. Um, we, we've already mentioned um, how the first generation were big-time complainers. Um, they really grumbled a lot. Um, they complained for lack of water, lack of food, complained again for lack of water, complained that the way was too tough, complained that they didn't have any meat, uh, complained uh, about the spies' report, complained that Cord, Dathan, and Abiram had been killed, so they were just big time complainers. And uh, this is another thing we see in the world today. I, I don't know what's going up on up there in Canada, but uh, down here, um, everybody is complaining about something. If, if you watch the news, um, you know, it's just nonstop complaining. A new political party comes into power, changes everything, and then they're complaining about the exact opposite things. Um, it, it's just a, a time of complaining and, and malcontentedness. Um, you can tell I'm doing some work in Philippians as well. Another verse in Philippians, do all things without grumbling 
So that's another way of saying complaining or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So the apostle Paul is, is really saying there that, you know, if you don't complain and don't grumble, that'll actually cause you to stand out in this world and, and cause you to shine as lights in this world, which, which is true today as it was true then. Uh, not complaining will really make you stand out in this world. But I think the problem with the first generation was even deeper than just complaining. It was, it was more that they were just sitting around waiting for God to save them. And, you know, when that didn't happen, um, they complained. And as we mentioned uh, this morning in the type of the water, um, you know, we have to do our part. You know, we have to get involved, especially as we're transitioning, God willing, out of this period of coronavirus. We have to get our momentum going again and, and um, you know, really get involved in the work of the Ecclesia. I remember talking to my dad one time and saying, you know, just confessing that I was, you know, going through a bit of a low point in the truth and, and you know, what could I do? And, you know, he quoted that verse um, that actually was in our exhortation in Ann Arbor this morning, which is where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And it, it didn't say where your heart is, there will your treasure be, but where your treasure is, there your heart will follow. So, the idea is if we prioritize the things of the ecclesia and the things of the truth, our heart will follow, but we need to get involved. So, you know, to me, the lesson about the complaining here was it, it was more an attitude of inactivity or an attitude that, you know, God was going to do everything for them. And when that didn't happen, they murmured and complained. Uh, there's a lot of great verses about the fact that, you know, we just can't stop doing bad. We have to start doing good. We have to replace that time with uh, work in our Lord's service. Uh, just one great verse, Ephesians 4, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, the thief stops stealing, starts working so that he can be generous with others, taking the, the, the former bad activity, not just turning it into inactivity, but turning it to good activity. Now, the next one was just a complete and total amazement to me. I was uh, listening to some talks on Cora Dathan and Abiram, and um, th this one is just amazing. Um, because it, it's so much happening today. Um, we'll just turn over to number 16, verses uh, one through three. And we, we won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's the incident of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Uh, now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses. Moses was certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. Every one of them, 
and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then, lift ye yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord. Now, if you really read that verse 3 there, you know, I always thought Cor, Dathan, and Byram was just three rebellious guys that, you know, were sick and tired of, you know, doing what Moses and Aaron told them to do. It's, it's actually a lot more than that. Um, number one, Korah takes with him 250 princes of the assembly. And um, these weren't just princes of Levi. These were princes of all the various tribes uh, throughout um, Israel. And, you know, basically, we, we see later in the chapter that they took up censers and burned incense. They were challenging God's appointment of the tribe of Levi and Aaron and his family as the priestly tribe. So Korah was basically challenging Aaron and, and not only challenging Aaron, but challenging God's appointment of the Levites as the priestly tribe. And Dathan and Abiram were of uh, the disgraced firstborn son, Reuben, who were challenging Moses as the leader of the congregation. They were saying, no, we should be leaders. And they actually disobeyed Moses later on in the chapter uh, when Moses summoned them. So Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were basically challenging Aaron and the Levites as priests, challenging Moses as the prince of Israel, the divinely appointed leader. They were basically challenging everything that God had sent up. You know, they, they were just tearing it all down and rebuilding it their own way. And that phrase in verse 3 is, is just amazing. All the congregation are holy. You know, it's, it's easy to just blow past that phrase, but isn't that nothing more than the modern doctrine of humanism? That man is good and therefore he can invent his own definition of, of right and wrong. That's exactly what's going on here, brothers and sisters and young peoples. And, you know, boy, do we ever see that today. This, this is a full-on movement today. We don't need to go into all the specifics, but man is rewiring the moral compass right now. He is redefining what is right and what is wrong, uh, which frequently in, in complete opposition, 180 degrees opposed to what God has defined as right and wrong. So, um, this rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram really underlies a fundamental problem with the people where they were really questioning that what God had said was right. And, and they were starting to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, and kind of come up with their own um, rules, so to speak. So that was another major thing that uh, was holding the people back. And then what a lot of you mentioned uh, in our first chat cloud was this idea of lack of faith. And, you know, whether this was, whether this was one of the effects or, or, or one of the causes or, or maybe the effect of the other causes, um, they got an F minus in faith, didn't they? And uh, we won't read through the verses, but because we want to spend a little bit of time in the second generation, but um, it was a total fail, a total fail in Numbers 13. Um, the spies went in, they came back, they said, yes, it's a land that flows with milk and honey, we agree with that, but the people are strong, the cities are walled, there's these sons of Anak, these funny-looking tall guys with long necks, but then they just start talking about the regular people, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and Canaanites, the, just the regular inhabitants are scary and intimidating. 
Uh, Caleb, of course, tried to settle them down, but the, the 10 spies came back and said, no, they are stronger than us. And in verse 32, it uses this word evil report. They, the, it's the idea that they were even exaggerating. They, they were lying on how bad the situation was. And ironically, they said the land will eat us, where they were supposed to be the ones eating of the land. And they were like grasshoppers compared to these giants. So, um, you know, it was just a total fail. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, there have been times in our lives when we've gotten an F in faith, probably so. I, at least speaking for myself, I know there's times where I really feel like I had an opportunity to be faithful, but uh, I, I just didn't take that opportunity. Okay, so we, we get to the inflection point and then they start turning things around. So let's do another chat cloud here. And let's talk about one word responses to what did the second generation do? How were they different? How did they start heading in the right direction where this, this first generation, um, you know, just, just made a total mess of things. So start throwing your responses. Hopefully everyone's still awake out there. Um, and what can we say about this second generation? How were they different? Vision, excellent. Belief, excellent. Those are two of the big ones. Obey, very good. Some good responses so far. Don't be bashful. Feel free to throw those ideas out there. There's no wrong answers here. Repentant, very good. Hope, Example. Okay, you guys are pretty much nailing most of the ones I was thinking of. So as we kind of head to the finish line here, thanks for those responses. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about this second generation and what they did differently. So um, the first thing that this second generation did, and, and once again, it may have been the effect of, of their other positive behaviors, but they they started to show faith. They, they started to take really baby steps of faith and um, it grew into more faith. Um, in Numbers 20, we kind of skipped over Numbers 20. Um, we talked about chapter 19 this morning. Numbers 20 is where Edom refuses uh, them to pass through their land. So they got to do this big U-shaped travel pattern Um right around uh, the territory of Edom and come up the east side. And uh, the first thing that happens is this, this King Arad attacks them. And, you know, you can see the people are quite stressed out um, that Arad attacks. And, and it says in verse two that they vowed a vow unto the Lord. And it seems like they were quite, quite nervous about um, the, this prospect of this king attacking them, but they vow a vow to the Lord. And sure enough, the Lord's hearkens to them and delivers Arid into their hands. So they, they kind of took this first baby step of faith, and that can be the way it, it is uh, in our lives sometimes, uh, brothers and sisters, at least in my own, that, you know, sometimes we just need to start small and, and find ways to start trusting God and build that confidence um, that, that God will take care of us and will, um, you know, fill in the gaps and, and deal with situations that we expose ourselves to 
by being faithful. So this was their first baby step of faith. And then, you know, sure enough, the people, you know, start heading south doing that big U around the land of Edom and they get discouraged. They get discouraged and it means they were cut short or impatient and they actually do hark back to the land of Egypt in, in verse 5 of chapter 21. And uh, this is the last time they did that, but they did do it. And of course, God sends the fiery serpents among them, which is another just fantastic metaphor of the Lord's atoning work. And we know the bite of sin, uh, the bite of the serpent is, is synonymous with sin that leads to death. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, it said this was a time that they tested Christ in the wilderness. But notice what they say. They say something they've never said before, which is, we have sinned in verse 7. They First time they've said that. So they, they complain, but then they quickly realize, you know what? Um, we've sinned and, and we need to change. And we know the story where Moses lifted up the brazen serpent on the pole as is, is a standard or ensign to look up to. And we know that's a direct symbol that Lord Jesus quotes that verse about himself as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. So shall the son of man be lifted up. And we need to look on him in belief, which is what the people were invited to do, to look on that bronze serpent in belief. So another great type of the atoning work of Christ. So then the people continue up the east side of the Amorites here. They, they've shown a baby step of faith and they've, they've shown the ability finally to admit that they were wrong and, and they needed to change. And then this amazing little section of verses comes along that um, Brother Craig read for us this, uh, this evening. That um, I don't know if you noticed that, you know, they went to Beer, that is the well where the, of the Lord spake unto Moses. And in verse 18, apparently there was a shortage of water. What would the first generation have done? Guaranteed complaint. This generation, the princes digged the well and the nobles of the people digged it by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness, they went um, to Medanea. So it, it's a change, isn't it? They are starting to realize they, they just can't complain and expect God to do everything for them, but they need to do their part. And I don't know about you, but a, a stave is not a very effective digging tool, but they did their part, right? Sometimes in ecclesial life, it, it does feel like we're digging with staves, doesn't it? You know, it seems like we're, we're not making a whole lot of progress and, and just kind of, you know, barely moving the needle. But if we do our part, God can give the increase and, and bless us. And then lastly, um, they continue to build faith. Once they take that baby step of faith, uh, they come up along Moab and, and Ammon and they smote Sihon, king of the Amorites. They didn't even consult with God this time. They just went and did it, right? They just had the faith to take Heshbon and take Jazer and the villages. They just acted. And, and then, you know, it's just beautiful what happens next. They come, keep on coming up, and as Brother Craig read for us, they then take on Bashan and this Og, king of Bashan. And this, this was a prize area. It was, it was very fertile and it had pasture land and oak forests. We find out later in Deuteronomy that it had 60 cities and villages. 
that were all fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, besides unwalled towns, a great many. And remember, it was these same walled villages that completely put the people off back in Numbers 13, but with God's encouragement, they, they went in and, and took this area of Bashan. And this is all happening before they even crossed the Jordan into the promised land. So just a quick word about this, this baby steps of faith and, and growing faith in our lives. You know, if, if we look at um, sequences in the New Testament where faith is included, we have the word of God, hearing and faith. That's one sequence we're given. And certainly the word of God is critical to our faith. We have faith, hope, and love. Uh, faith can lead to the, the virtues of hope and the greatest virtue of love. But then we have that verse in James 1, verse 3, where it's really trials that bring faith, that develop patience, that make us complete or spiritually mature. So, you know, if we're thinking that this last year has been a tough time, and I, I know it's been a tough time for all of us, it's there for a reason, isn't it? It's, it's there to grow our faith. In Deuteronomy, we're told that, you know, the trials in the wilderness were brought to humble and prove them and to develop their faith. You know, even the leadership struggled. We, we saw how Aaron and Miriam struggled um, this morning. Even Moses struck the rock at Kadesh, didn't he, and, and struggled during this time. The Life in the truth is not easy, even for the strongest among, among us, and yet we can grow in faith uh, during these difficult times. So just to summarize, um, I think that these are really the key uh, differences between the first generation and the second generation. The first generation was weak in faith. They did not trust God to help them. The second generation took baby steps in faith, and, and, and their faith became contagious, just like David's faith became contagious. Uh, their faith became contagious to the point where they were taking on much bigger giants. Um, Cord, Dathan, and Byram, just incredible. I, I never realized this before. They It wasn't just a power grab. They contradicted the divine appointments of the Levites and Moses' leadership. They were humanists. God is wrong and man is right. The second generation, they made mistakes, but they repented when they did. They held to what we know is true, that righteousness is of God and, and we are sinners. Um, the first generation frequently complained and didn't do their part when challenges arose. Where the second generation started to get involved in solving the problem and understood God would provide the ultimate solution, but that's the water effect going back to the offering of the red heifer. And I, I have to tell you, brothers and sisters and young people, I just did not realize all this was in the book of Numbers. But, you know, the more things change, the more they remain the same, isn't it? These are the exact same problems we see in the world today and the exact same solutions we, we can see in the ecclesia today. And then lastly, they looked back to Egypt where... The second generation looked forward to the promised land and had a vision of their life there, something that is, is just so important. So um, just a quick final um, chat cloud. Um, 
maybe name some people or groups of people that that had a vision of the future in this last section of numbers. This one might be a little tougher, but think of some of the people that are brought up in the last half of numbers and and how did they show of, that they had a vision of the kingdom. The daughters of Zelophehad, all right, my favorite. You guys are on it. Um, the daughters of Zelophehad had a tremendous vision of the kingdom and they wanted to make sure that they were not going to be ruled out of their inheritance uh, by the fact that the Zelophehad had no sons. Who else had? Uh, Caleb? Did the Lawrences put in Caleb? Fantastic. Um, Caleb uh, had to remind Joshua and the elders that, hey, you said I was going to get this area of Hebron. Now I'm, I'm coming to uh, make uh, good on that promise. Um, ironically, even Balaam, uh, who was uh, maybe not the most upstanding character, through God prophesied that a king would come from Israel and prophesied of Israel being uh, settled in the promised land. So that's all we have time for. Um, you, Joshua, oh my goodness, uh, absolutely Joshua. He was another that, uh, it says the spirit of God was in him, right? And, and um, he was the one, uh, the type of Jesus that led them into the land of promise. Other faithful men like Phineas, remember Phineas who, who um, made the stand against immorality in, in the camp of Israel. All I can tell you, brothers and sisters, this is a fantastic book. I never realized before that, you know, just how much numbers is a, a, a guidebook for our walk in the truth. And I hope you enjoy reading it. 